May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So as I said at the beginning of the service today, it is a big day. There's a lot going on in our church calendar. Today is the last Sunday in ordinary time. So next Sunday Advent starts and we're into a new church year. It is also the last Sunday we have Luke's Gospel. So we have a chance to think about what we have learned from Luke over the last 12 months. It's the reign of Christ the King or the reign of Christ Sunday. It's Stir Up Sunday, so my job is to stir you up, so I'll give that a crack. But I think it also means we're supposed to stir up our Christmas puddings. And it's Aotearoa Sunday, when we remember the formation of Te Piokotanga or Aotearoa. A lot. Where to begin with all of that? Well, let's begin with Christ the King. So I've said this before, but it's worth remembering that this was created by Pope Pius XI in 1925 as a way to combat the rising anti-clericalism. And by anti-clericalism, I mean clerics have been killed in places like Spain and Italy and other places. And the rising nationalism in Europe after World War I. Also at this point, the Curia was not a big fan of democracy. So uh, democracy was a pretty new invention in 1925. Uh, we like to say we fought World War I for our freedom. And I often wonder, what freedom do we think we were fighting for? For the working man in England, that did not include voting. So they got the vote in 1918, along with some women. Uh, so they didn't get to choose the government who sent them off to die in the trenches. Uh, the landed class got to do that. And the Curia, the Catholic Church officially, was pretty anti-democracy. They understood that the right way, the God-given way of government was kings at the top, then the ruling class, and then all, everyone else should just do what they were told. So there's a hint of that in Christ the King Sunday. To his credit, Pope Pius XI is the Pope who actually said, okay, we can live with democracy and no form of government is God-given. But that was eight years later. And his social teaching was pretty radical for the time and has laid the foundation for what Pope Francis is doing at the moment. So, in many ways, he was a good Pope, but at this point, the Roman Catholic's particular official position was, didn't like democracy. So all of this is tied up with Christ the King. What was Pius XI trying to do, and why have we adopted this, and what do we think we're celebrating as we celebrate Christ the King? Or, as many churches have called it, the reign of Christ rather than Christ the King. So I have some questions for you to think about for a few minutes with your neighbours, and then we'll have a conversation. So what is kingship? What's that all about? What are some images or words of Christ kingship that come to mind? And there are multiple on the internet. What is unhelpful about Christ the King? Where do we look in the Bible for our images of Christ the King? And what does Christ the King offer us? So there's a whole lot of questions. You can do them all or you can 
pick one or two and just have a conversation with your neighbours for about three or four minutes. Turn around, have a chat, we'll see what you think. What are the images or words of Christ's kingship that come to mind? What did you talk about? The cross? Oof, straight in there. Which is not a normal one that you would think for kingship, is it? So it's pretty subversive. Yeah. Right, anti-king. And he was mocked as a king. In fact, they put a crown of thorns on him and draped him in a purple robe. I mean, they were both a crown and a purple as symbols of kingship. So it was a mocking. It was, yeah. They were trying to mock him. Yeah. And yet he ended up being proclaimed king. Um, so I'll come back to that in a minute. Any other, any other images that come to mind of Christ the King? A little bit um, kind of to a tangent, but um, you claim to be king and Messiah was through uh, being David's descendant and it also harked back to the golden age of the of the Jewish monarchy uh, when there were only three kings that well four kings that ruled the United Tribes Solomon um, Saul David Solomon and briefly Solomon's son Rehoboam who learned nothing from his father who wasn't very wise uh, and uh, in fact um, did everything wrong in the end uh, and divided the kingdom. So we like to think Solomon was wise, but no. Have a read of what the Bible says about Solomon. Started off well, turned to custard pretty quickly. Very quickly. And thick custard. Uh, so what is unhelpful about Christ the King? Come up with anything? Yeah, he's making him, saying he's the, um, the king, is compared to earthly kings, and on the whole, earthly kings weren't very nice people. So they weren't good models of linking that with him. It's not, it's not appropriate. No, it's not. And yet, if you go on the internet and you look up Christ the King and look up images, you would be amazed how many of them look exactly like an earthly king. And so, from the time of the Byzantine Emperor, he looks a lot like a Byzantine Emperor. Uh, with the same um, symbols of office and sitting on the same throne. And one of my favourites is a Russian icon which has him dressed as a Tsar. So, uh, Christ the King portrayed in exactly the same way as we would portray an earthly king. And there's lots of Christians who believe in that king. Uh, and, um, and 
They make the cross safe. So the cross becomes not subversive because the, by, by proclaiming Christ King after the crucifixion, that's a very subversive thing to say. In the Roman world, power and authority came from Rome. It came from the emperor. And he appointed everyone in power's authority, even kings. And he fired them. So Herod Antipas, who's the Herod that Jesus has the doings with, gets fired and has to go and live in exile in Gaul. Because um, the Roman emperor, Tiberius, or whoever is the emperor at the time, gets sick of him. Sick of his incompetence and says, Look, I've had enough. You go there and I'm going to do something else. Um, so to proclaim Christ as king is to say the Roman emperor is not the all-powerful one, that God through Christ is the all-powerful one. And amongst the emperor's both official and unofficial titles, so Augustus was proclaimed Prince of Peace when he became the first emperor because he stopped the civil war. And a number of emperors were proclaimed Prince of Peace because when they won, the civil war ended and peace was restored. So they were called Prince of Peace. And what did the Christians call Jesus? Prince of Peace. Very subversive. That guy in Rome is not the Prince of Peace. The one who hung on a cross is the Prince of Peace. The Roman emperors were called Son of God. Jesus was called Son of God. They took imperial titles and they applied them to Jesus and said, that's not kingship, that's not what authority looks like, this is what authority looks like. But we keep forgetting, and we stop using Christ as our model, and we use our own kings as our models, and we place those models back onto Jesus. So Christ the King is complicated and contested. It's not an easy image. So where do we look in the Bible for some of our images and models of for Christ being king? Apart from the crucifixion. Isaiah? Jeremiah? Yeah? Yep. Yep. Jeremiah, I thought that was interesting in reading this morning, speaks, of course, King is a shepherd. Yep. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yep. It's, it's not our concept of monarchy, it's a direct appointment. Yep. Our idea of earthly monarchy. The riding on the donkey, which is not even a full grown donkey. Yep. So, not a war horse, but a donkey. Uh, yeah. So yeah, one of the things Humility. that talk about is as Jesus entered on a foal of a donkey, Herod and Pilate entered Rome on war horses, surrounded by legions and armed forces. So again, different images. Humility. Yeah. I mean, you look at um, picking up Paul's thing. Uh, so the Gospels are full of those kind of things. In a Luke's Gospel, um, we can talk about the reign of Christ being talked about in Mary's song. Uh, in, the, 
in the Benedicity that we read, uh, in, in the tests in the wilderness, they are all about what kind of son of God you, will you be, what kind of king will you be. And Satan tests Jesus, so I really don't like the word tempt because tempt sounds like I'm going to tempt you with some chocolate cake. And that really wasn't what it was about. It was a test of identity to the core of who he was. And, you know, will you rule with power? Will you rule with fame? Will you rule um, with the angels protecting you? None of those things were the kind of kingship that Jesus accepted. He said, get away from me, Satan. And so all of that comes back at the crucifixion. Save yourself and save me. Jesus says, no, this is the way. So uh, then we have the, in Luke's Gospel, Luke 4, we have the reading of the Isaiah um, reading and people not being super happy when he says, today this is fulfilled. Um, we have uh, the blessings and woes, which is the Luke equivalent of the um, Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel in, in Luke 6. And we have all his parables uh, and then we have um, the crucifixion, which all the Gospels have. Now, all of them are providing us biblical images for what Christ the King looks like. I would say what Christ the King offers us is a deeply subversive image of what kingship is about, which bears no resemblance to how we often see it in the world. And the tragedy is that we as Christians, instead of taking Christ as our model, take our experience of kingship as our model, and we apply those models onto Christ, with some pretty devastating consequences down through history. Today is also Aotearoa Sunday, and I think the story links with that. This is the story of the appointment of Te Piopa o Aotearoa, the first Māori bishop in 1928, and it's a shameful story. It is a really hard story for us as Parker to remember, uh, and it was a Sunday set aside for us to remember and to pray for the Bishop of Aotearoa. And so from the 1870s, once so when the missionaries came, they were English, but they spent a lot of time learning about Te Ao Māori. They learned Te Ao Māori, uh, they were immersed in that world, and they were English, and there were faults with what they did, but mostly they were well respected, and they were invited into Māori communities. But after the 1850s, uh, with the, when the settler population outgrew the Māori population, and the appointment of British English bishops, uh, who had no knowledge of Te Ao Māori and no interest in it, and their focus was on the settler church. Uh, Māori increasingly called for a Māori bishop as the CMS, um, as the missionaries started to die, um, they wanted, and the, the Māori Anglican Church, the Hahi Mihinari, came under the authority of the Pākehā bishops, the English bishops. They wanted their own bishop. They wanted to be in control of their own life from the 1870s and all through into the 1920s it just didn't hit the floor of General Synod. Um, the story of our diocese is the first two diocesan synods were all conducted in Te Rau Māori. There were only two Pākehā bishops. There were only two Pākehā present, the bishop, William Williams, 
and one archdeacon. Everyone else was Māori and it was done in uh, Te Māori and it followed Māori kōpaha. So um, it was only after the land war that that began to change. In 1925, General Synod agreed to a process by which a Māori bishop could be appointed, but the North Island bishops said no and refused to enact it. 1928, there was a commission, and the commission was set up because too many Māori Anglicans were becoming ratna, and they realised they had to do something. So in 1928, uh, there was a special general synod, and this time they agreed to a process, and much to su the surprise of the bishops, Māori were insistent that the first Māori bishop would not be a Pākehā. So they understood the Pākehā bishops, the North Island bishops, the first Māori bishop would be one of them. And they were shocked when Māori said, yeah, whatever, you know nothing about our world. So that's not happening. Um, so then the North Island bishops said, okay, we will choose your first bishop. So just imagine of how happy we'd be with that with a bunch of bishops who have nothing to do with us, choose our first bishop. And Frederick Bennett was appointed the first bishop. He was not the choice of Aparananata, but he was willing to live with them. But then Bishop Simpkin said, uh, then there was uh, only half a, stipend by, half a stipend provided, because he didn't need a full stipend, because uh, he was just a Māori. And there was no place for him. Waipu offered a place and, um, and um, Māori in Waipu Diocese provided the income for the, st for the stipend. They underwrote that, which is why we have a special relationship with Te Piokotanga o Aotearoa. Bishop Simkin, when he was Bishop of Auckland, refused to allow Piopo Bennett into his diocese. And so we have the story in the Second World War of the Māori Battalion being trained from Auckland to Rotorua so they could have a final service of blessing before they went off to fight in the Second World War and then training back to Auckland so they could then get on their ships because Bishop Bennett was not allowed to go to Auckland to conduct that service. He was the only Māori in General Synod until the 1970s repeatedly General Synod said, no, we do not need any more Māori on our General Synod, thank you very much. Uh, but in 1978, Te Piokotanga o Aotearoa was recognised and they were given seats on General Synod. Hui Virko was made the first Piokotanga o Aotearoa with authority outside of the Diocese of Waipu in 1981. 1981. That was the first time that Māori were then able to have representation on General Synod. Now I talk about this because at the moment, uh, and then uh, very quickly things changed because Māori came to General Synod and said, uh, we think the Treaty of Waitangi is important for us as a church because we wrote it, we translated it, we took it around, we persuaded the Māori and the Bay of Islands to sign it and then mostly it was Anglican missionaries who took it around the country and persuaded other Māori to sign it. There were other people involved, but our fingerprints were all over it. So a commission was set up and they reported in 1986 to General Synod with a report, He tikanga, he tikanga the two ways. 
And they said the treaty does have something to say with our church life, and here's some solutions. And I sat as an observer from St John's College and listened as General Synod, Parker General Synod Rep stood up and apologised for voting against Māori being in General Synod and then said, but we will not agree to any of these proposals. We like things just as they are, thank you very much. But a new commission was set up and in 1990 General Synod was in Fiji and a lot of those Pākehā worked out that they were not the norm. Like that's our thing, we're the normal way of doing things and everyone else does stuff differently. And they went to Suva and you discovered we are not the norm because when you're in Fiji, the Polynesian way is the norm. So, oh, that was a bit of a learning. Uh, so we have our new constitution which came into being, was agreed to in 1990 and went through all the diocese and synods and was agreed to and came into force in 1992. 30 years ago, Christ the King is subversive. It makes us question, it should make us question, how we do governance. And it makes us think about the words of Jeremiah, about the king who was the shepherd, who was criticised because the kings were getting wealthy and the poor were getting poorer, and the orphans and the widows and the poor were being left destitute, as were the foreigners. And the role of the king was to protect all of those people. I raise all of those things because in our political life at the moment are two things. The first is Dhaka Fayora and the second is co-governance. And we're struggling with some of these as a country. Two of our major political parties are opposed to both of these things officially. So Dhaka Fayora is the Māori Health Authority. Now we've been living as Anglicans with the equivalent of Dhaka Fayora since 1978. Māori were given authority in some way for their church life in 1978 and absolute authority over their church life in 1990 for the last 30 years because it's their world their language they are the only ones who understand how it operates and how to be church in that context it makes sense and we as a church as people who have lived this have something to say to that particularly because the subversive Christ the King keeps inviting us to question how we do things and to look for better ways. Co-governance, well, we've been doing that since 1992. Māori have been at the decision-making table. It took a long time, it took 100 years, but they got there, 120 years, but they got there on the decision-making table. And it has changed how we do stuff as a church. So yes, if you don't want change, fight co-governance, but Actually, co-governance has been a great thing for us as a church. It has invited us to see the world in completely different ways. General Synod, very I remember having conversations with the then Archbishop Brian Davis, and he didn't think anything would change. And I would and I kept going, Oh my goodness, you are in for the biggest shock of your life. Because at the very next General Synod, Māori stood up and went, Why are we doing everything in English? We still do everything in English. But there was the capacity for things to be done in Māori, in Fijian, in Tongan, in Samoan, in Hindi, because speakers of all of those languages were present and were always having to use, in some of the cases, their second or third language to speak English. And we didn't have to do things in the Pākehā way. And so 
the way that general synod makes its decisions changed. Uh, and one of those things was we invented a thing called caucusing. So contentious issues would come up, and all the Pākehā would get together, and all the Māori would get together, and all the Polynesians would get together, and they'd have a kororo, and then they'd come back together, and they'd have a conversation about what was the big issue, and then they'd send delegates between things, and they'd find a way to make it work. That, that worked for everyone, because for a decision to get through General Synod, every tikanga has to agree to it. And if one of them says, we can't agree to it, then it doesn't get passed. Everyone has to be able to work with it. It has radically changed how General Synod makes its decisions. For the better. For the better. And if you ever have the chance to go to General Synod, it is the most amazing thing. What does co-governance mean? It means people who see the world differently from us will be at the decision-making table. And that is a good thing. We as a church have lived that for the last 30 years. It's not a new thing for us. It's not a strange thing. It is part of our everyday life. So as we think about Christ the King, the subversive King, who unsettles us and makes us question everything that we think about kingship and government and how we make decisions, are we willing to apply some of our learning as an Anglican church some of the bad learning from our shameful history with the Pilkatana and offer that to the wider community. That's my stir up for us on Stir Up Sunday.